when I was 18. Uh, I had my first car. Uh, I loved going in the fields and, and having, doing some slides and, and doing the fastest corner as possible. And I don't know why, but uh, it was like this. Uh, my, my goal was to be the fastest in the corner. And then after the finish, you know, the last time control and uh, in the harbor of or the port of, of Monaco, it's like, wow, okay, enjoy the podium ceremony with, uh, you know, you are standing next to next to Thierry, next to Roger, next to Elfe. Describe yourself, your character, your personality, but using only three words. Uh, straightforward guy. <laughs> Welcome to WRC Backstories, our exclusive World Rally Championship podcast presented by Bex Williams. Welcome back, everyone, to WRC Backstories. We have taken a little break over the past few months, but we are very much back in action now and ready to deliver you some behind-the-scenes insights into our drivers, co-drivers, team managers, engineers, whoever it may be, around the WRC service park, whether it be the here and now or the past. And we're slightly delving into the past today in WRC, but certainly he is a very current driver leading the ERC championship right now. We're going to be chatting to Hayden Padden, multiple New Zealand champion, Asia Pacific champion, PWRC champion back in 2011. Hayden has a fascinating backstory. A New Zealand driver, the only New Zealand driver, in fact, to make it onto the top step of a WRC podium. How did he do it? How did he make his way from South Island in New Zealand, work his way up the ranks to get to the top step of the podium? Well, we're about to find out. And we would love your feedback on who you would like to hear from next on Backstories. So let us know using the WRC Live hashtag, but also WRC Backstories hashtag. And let us know who you want to hear from. Who are you interested in finding out about? And we will do our best to track that person down and interview them, whether they like it or not. I'm going to stop chatting away to you now because Hayden Padden awaits. So settle yourselves in and get ready to hear from Mr. Padden. It's the first time I've ever said on this Backstories podcast, let's cross out to New Zealand. And I'm really excited to be able to say that we've we've done Australia, but now we're heading to New Zealand to catch up with Hayden Padden. Good evening to you, Hayden. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Thanks very much, Bex. Ah, it's really lovely to be able to chat with you because I've been doing the Backstories podcast now for, I don't know, three, four years. And the amount of messages I get saying, do Hayden next. We want to hear from Hayden Padden next. You have a huge amount of fans out there, which must be very lovely for you. Um, how are things in New Zealand right now? Because I saw you just a couple of weeks ago in Sweden and you're back home at the moment. Everything good there? Uh, it's definitely a bit colder back home. Um, yeah. But the body, the body clock's actually on European time. So I seem to be awake a lot at night time. So I'm not seeing a lot of New Zealand, but... <laughs> Uh, yeah, home for nine days and then back on the plane again, but it's good to come home and just refresh. And to be honest, um, this was probably the way I would have preferred to do it even back in the WRC days is yeah. travel back to New Zealand and then travel for rallies and maybe doing blocks of two or three rallies. Um, so I actually don't mind the travel and obviously coming back home and back to familiar, uh, some familiar territory and catch up with people. And, and in our case, make sure uh, the business and the boys and everything are all doing a good job as well. 
Yeah, it's getting on with with your actual life as well as as the rally, isn't it? And, and life is back there. Now, Hayden, these podcasts, they kind of delve a little bit into your soul. Uh, we've discovered lots, lots of funny stuff about people and lots of interesting elements about characters that that make up the WRC and rallying in general, um, whether it be, I mean, I've spoken to drivers, co-drivers, team management, engineers, FX de Maison told me some fascinating stories about what could have happened at Volkswagen with the, the Beetle potentially being a rally car before he stepped in and said no. I'm not expecting you to drop any massive truth bombs today. We just want to discover a little bit more about you. And we always start with asking how you would describe yourself using three words that don't have to three be Three words. Three. Three. <laughs> put on the spot, isn't it? Uh, um uh passionate um hard working trustworthy probably the three things that come to mind yeah passionate is is definitely a popular one but i don't think we've had trustworthy before i like that one i think it's a a kiwi thing but it's it's burnt us a couple of times as well so (laughs) anyway you, you, you live and learn as well don't you you definitely do. You definitely do. And I want to know about your life because I know about your life rally wise. I know about your successes and know how you kind of, you know, worked your way into certainly the WRC. But I don't know much about where it all came from. And I'm I'm really keen to know, you know, what you were like as a youngster. I can't imagine a baby Padden right now kind of running around heading to school. Were you a nightmare with your parents? Were you a good student at school? What were you like when you were younger? Uh, my, my memory's not so great, but um, I do remember <laughs> I, I was I was always a car nut. Um, obviously, my father was a rally driver, so I remember as a kid always playing with the matchbox, toys, cars, uh, I do actually remember all the pot plants that used to be around the, the around the house. You used to tip, tip the pot plants out inside and use the dirt from that with your matchbox toys, and that's yeah, that was your rally car thing. Um, and then uh, I always remember watching one of the birthday presents I got was a, a Duke video of uh, the ninety the ninety five RAC rally. Obviously, when Colin won the world championship, yeah. and I used to watch that video on just constant repeat. So it was never cartoons. It was always just watching that one rally and that one video and. Um, especially back in the 90s like I was obviously a rally fan and I was obviously young and I was just growing up and around what dad was doing and things but back in the 90s he wasn't really the internet so the world rally championship we didn't really see what was going on or really knew what was going on it was just this one juke video that was probably outdated by one or two years but that was sort of our knowledge of what we saw of what was going on in the sport but um yeah just sort of I guess blossom from there really from then into go-karts um and and bits and pieces and then schooling um yeah I guess you could say I was probably a bit of a I was competitive in school shall we say so in intermediate school they had a had a system where you got stamps um for the work that you did homework and basically throughout the year you got judged on how many stamps you acquired throughout the year and it was just my one goal because there was a trophy at the end of it that I wanted to win this this thing for um for the year and uh, I actually remember getting a lecture from the teacher at one point um that I was doing too much homework um to try and get too many stamps because I was being too competitive about it so I was trying I was told to actually tame back the the homework a bit um wow so yeah, that competitive school- edge was there straight away then uh I'm a, I'm a very bad loser to be honest <laughs> so I'm I've always been very competitive and no matter what I, what I do. So um, that was always there right from the word go. Um, 
And then, yeah, high school is actually probably quite the opposite. It was, um, yeah, difficult times, if you like, because stuff going on in the family and then having to move towns and then then going into a high school where you didn't go where any of your friends went, so you had to start trying to network again and you were sort of the person that probably didn't fit in. So then school and life become a bit of a uh, a battle, shall we say, and then probably the saviour to all of it was actually then once I got my driver's licence is that I could go out and probably didn't spend enough time in class. I'd prefer to go out and go out in the back gravel roads and just go out driving and hooning, and, and that's what kept me sane. So, yeah, it kept me on the straight and narrow, I guess you could say. So as you were such a, a competitive student in school, what were the subjects that you really enjoyed or excelled at? Uh, probably maths and uh, and art or graphics. So okay. um, I've, always, I've always enjoyed maths. English was never a great subject and science was never a great subject. But uh, yeah, I've always liked numbers and bits and pieces. And luckily I can do my times table. So it wasn't so bad. <laughs> Good. I can call on you for that then because my maths is horrendous. I have to say, even like working differences in times out between you guys when the splits come in. I'm so glad it's all computerized and it does it for me because well, yeah, you've got green and red boxes as well. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I'd be all over the place without that, I can tell you. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting that I love that that competitive streak was absolutely there like when you were when you were younger. I can't imagine the the dirt pulled out from the plant plants went down well, though. That element, I'm sure, was just like, oh, Hayden, what are you doing? Get into the yard. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we used to rip up the backyard, backyard as well with the go-kart, which uh, mum was never so pleased about. Dad was out there encouraging it in the garden ripped up so whether it was inside the house or outside the house it was just a mess being caused so <laughs> and did, did you growing up obviously your your dad was driving so there's an there's an inspiration there did did you think growing up in your teenagers that's what I want to go and do or were were the school were your parents putting pressure on you to find like a dare I say it a proper job because that's how teachers would describe it here yeah, well, I think when you're young like that, you had no idea that there was any future. Like for me, it felt like the equivalent of trying to be an astronaut. Like it just seemed so far-fetched. It was, it was something that I loved, but I didn't know, you know, when you're a kid, if there's a career or it's a, a job or anything like that. It, it's probably not until, probably until you are in your early teens and then the WRC was becoming a bit more apparent in New Zealand and obviously Rally New Zealand was coming down here. So you, could, you, you saw a bit more what was going on that you sort of aspired to go, yeah, okay, I want to do that. But again, there was a big gap in between. You had no idea on how to fill that gap of how to go from where you were in New Zealand to, to make that happen. But um, yeah, it was always a dream, but it was literally a very, very far-fetched dream. Um, mm. But it wasn't until the years progressed. And yeah, there was some pressure probably to do some business um, marketing school um, papers at university. Um, but there was never really real pressure. Like my father's been a massive part in all parts of my life and he never pressured me. He sort of allowed me to make my own decisions based on what I was feeling. And and um, we did the whole tours to all the universities to work out which one I was going to go to after school. But then during the last year of school, it became very apparent that study or education at that point wasn't for me. And uh, I wanted to pursue something with motorsport. And then, um, so yeah, just obviously then all the university stuff stopped and uh, mm. went out and got my first job. And while I was doing my first job, I was able to still race cars, which was sort of progressively building up to become something bigger. And, and I guess it blossomed from there, really. What was the first job? Uh, working as a, a parts person at a motorbike shop. So, okay. uh, 
was in Geld- so in Geraldine, where I'm from, uh, population is what three thousand people. So there's not a lot of places you can get a job. So I applied for a job, and it was my first interview, and luckily I got the job. So, uh, but they were very good to me because even when I had that job, um, I still had to have a lot of time off to go rallying, and obviously they weren't in the rally or motorsport business, so they had to be pretty understanding of what I, I think I was 18 at the time. So what an 18 year old was trying to do. Wow. And you do need, you do need people like that in your life, understanding bosses. And there's been quite a few people I've spoken to Paul Nagel most recently for this podcast. And, and he had a very understanding. He worked for the government, for the electric board, and, and you know, he would be taking big swathes of time off, but they were, you know, completely supportive of it. And you, you do need people like that to get behind you, don't you? Oh, definitely. And obviously they were, um, Alan and Kerry at the time, they were massive supporters of, and allowed me to do that. Uh, but then I think after I was about 18 months, I was working there. Um, I then got a, a, a job offer from my old man. So um, he, he had a farm machinery business. So, and as things were getting busier and busier, obviously dad wanted to support me, but dad was always a big believer. And uh, like, we, we never come from a wealthy background and, and, and my father's farm machinery business was a small business and he put mm. everything into it to make that business survive. So he was never in a position to, to pile thousands and thousands of dollars in the rally. And so um, he had this mindset, you know, I had to work hard for what I wanted to do. So he offered me a job. I took the job and then that allowed me to work on the rally cars at night times. So I'd work in the office, um, helping him on marketing stuff during the day. And then uh, I'd be in the workshop at nights um, working. But he was a hard boss, even though he was your dad, people go, oh, it must have been easy. Actually, it's probably harder when you work for your family because they want you there at one minute to eight o'clock and you don't <laughs> clock off before five o'clock and you make sure you get everything done and and they're probably a bit harder on you as well. So it's certainly not a not an easy job, but um, obviously it presented me an opportunity to, I guess, spend more time on the rallying. And when we didn't need time off a rallying, obviously he was pretty understanding of what we needed to do. You mentioned they're working on the rally cars. So there's already rally cars there. And presuming they were your dad's or are these rally cars that you've got, where did the rally cars you've just mentioned come from? Uh, yeah, so by the time I started working for Dad, this is when we started competing in New Zealand Rally Championship. So this is uh, when we started campaigning uh, Mitsubishi Evo 8, Evo 9. So prior to that, we had um, my father's rally cars, which was a Toyota Corolla and a Mitsubishi Evo 4. Um, and nice. during those times, I was never a trained mechanic. But dad was a train mechanic. Um, but again, from when I started, even sorry, prior to that with my mini, which was pre-rally. So this is when you're doing autocrosses uh, auto and motor counters. Mm. Um, he taught me how to fix things. So when I broke it, rather than him turn around and fix it, he'd go, okay, no, you're going to fix this. And he'd show me how to fix it. And uh, I guess a bit of that tough love and teach me how to fix things And as you go. And so by the time we got to New Zealand Rally Championship uh, with the Evos, Pretty much me and one of my mates, uh, Neil, we were doing all the preparation on the cars. So uh, after every rally, we're re-prepping everything. And um, at this stage, we started working with uh, John uh, about the same time, um, John Kennard. So he was, I was very, always asking a lot of questions about how the rally world worked. And I was trying to learn all the time. And especially John, who'd come from ProDrive and, and some of his stories at the Subaru World Rally Team, learning how the teams operated. And I'd get these ideas in my head. And when I get an idea in my head, I want to, I want to execute it and I want to make it even better. So all of a sudden then I'm trying to prep our cars in the back shed of this leaky shed in the middle of nowhere um, until two, three o'clock in the nights, but trying to prep them like a WRC team, just me and a mate. So in terms of everything was very particular, we had, I had very thorough lists on how we prepared the car, made sure everything was ticked off, made sure 
everything was developed and um, to make sure we had a, a reliable car when we went to rallies, um, but also a team and a car and everything that looked good. I was always about making sure the car was clean and looked good and perfect. And um, we never had a lot of money, but sometimes mm. on the outside, it was perceived that we had these big budgets because everything looked good and was reliable, but we just had a really good group of friends and family around us and we just worked. We loved it. It was a hobby. It was what we loved doing. So. Yeah, and I think, you know, when you when you do love doing things, you're going to do them to the absolute best. Like you say, it's kind of real attention to detail that you've put in there to make sure everything works. When did you know, Hayden, that you were good behind the wheel? Because there are so many people and so many, so many people competing now who will do it, you know, weekend upon weekend, but they're just doing it for fun because they haven't got that extra edge to take them further on. When did you know, even in, in your kind of young days, even when you were behind the wheel of the mini doing autocross stuff, did you think, oh, I've got a little bit of something here. I can take this further. Did anyone tell you, you've, you've got it, kid? To be honest, no. And I'd probably even say, as, as stupid as it probably sounds, to this day, probably still not. I've, I've never thought of myself as, you know, being anything special in that respect. Uh, I've just always worked hard. Um, I push hard for results. Um, I'm very result driven and very goal driven. So I guess I get caught up in, in that process of trying to achieve the goals that you maybe forget about the bigger picture. But mm. I've never ever been in a position where I felt, oh yeah, we've got something here. Let's go further. It has always been it's been a natural progression of okay, this is my one year goal. This is my three year goal. This is my five year goal, and just trying to meet those. But even to, to this day, like I'll never rock up to a rally and be confident that you've got the edge over anyone. I go into any rally with the same mindset as I did when I was 12 year old, 12 year old in the mini, not overly confident, um, confident in your own preparation, but not confident in the result you can achieve. And then once you get to the first stage or whatever it may be, then it sort of settles the nerves down a little bit and then you become a bit more calm and a bit more confident. So the early days of, of competing, what were they like for you as in you know you, you talked about being part of the New Zealand Rally Championship that that's a huge thing in the country that's a massive thing to be able to go and do as a person as a driver how did you kind of I'm sure you began with exactly what you you said to us there your meticulous and attention to detail and getting everything right but were you nervous? Were you? Did you have butterflies? What was the general feeling kind of starting out doing that? Uh, definitely always nervous. Um, it sort of came out of nowhere as well because the previous year uh, was my first year in a four-wheel drive with uh, my father's Evo 4, uh, which um, got burnt to the ground in an accident um, in a rally, which... At that time, I actually thought it was the end of it all because we had we had no like in New Zealand we don't insure rally cars like it's obviously pretty normal in Europe that people insure rally cars over here most people don't so we were we were thirty grand out of pocket for this car we had no way of coming back so this was at the end of two thousand and five and then basically the whole South Canterbury community rallied behind us and got behind us and and saw what we were, what we were doing that year and, and wanted to support us and then through that support and a lot of people that got behind us, all of a sudden we had a car to do the national championship in the following year. And that was a real surprise because I went from thinking that's my rally career mm. done before it's even started to all of a sudden we're debuting in the New Zealand championship the following year. So <laughs> if anything, you're nervous, but it just felt like that first year a massive privilege because you felt like you were somewhere where you had no, you weren't even expecting to be there because um, it wasn't even on the radar. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, as an 18-year-old at the time, these were all the guys that I used to look up to on the TV, all the national guys and Chris West and Richard Mason and 
um, and all of a sudden we were competing on the same rallies at the same time. So it was, it was a, just a real, I guess, exciting experience. And then I guess during that year is when things, when we're starting to um, be quite competitive and, and things is when things probably started to click, go, okay, we can actually try and make something of this within New, Ze- uh, within New Zealand Championship anyway. Yeah. Um, and, and that was the, the first step. You mentioned some, you know, heroes there from from kind of New Zealand. And for, for me, I remember when I first started in the championship, my first rally in New Zealand was 2002. And that's when I first came across Possum Bourne. And then the next year he came to rally Sweden and he was the most fun driver I've ever seen on snow because it was such an experience for him. He'd never rallied on snow before. And I, I remember the utter joy every time he came back to the service spot because he was loving it so much. How much was was he an inspiration when you were growing up? Oh, massive. Um, like he was a household name in New Zealand. He is what, and even to this day, he still is a household name mm. in New Zealand rallying, and, and he's what's made um, rallying what it is in New Zealand to some respect. So, unfortunately, I was too young to really know him. Uh, I think I was about 12 when he passed away. Um, yeah. Of course, I remember going to events and supporting him and getting his autograph and uh, like any fan, any any fanboy. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, he was a huge inspiration. And, and probably the things that I learned from him later on, especially when we went back and used to watch a lot of the videos and the events he did, was obviously he was awesome on the car and had a lot of good results and bits and pieces, but he he was mainly remembered for the human being he was outside yeah. the car. Like what you're saying, you know, didn't matter if he was winning or losing, he always had a smile on his face. He was always appreciative of having the, the opportunity to go rallying mm-hmm. um, and always engaged with his, with his fans and people who are helping him. So that was that was the main inspiration I actually took from Possum was to try and be a decent human being um outside the car um and then of course colin was another obviously inspiration for me which is probably where the competitive side come from so mm. between colin possum and my father they were the three i guess that i've tried to mix together uh in terms of my my goals and what i inspired to be what a trifecta of drivers there <laughs> that's you know that that's great though that you look for different elements in different people and yeah i fantastic i mean your career like you said it it, it kind of started to really click then that that next year in the in the New Zealand Rally Championship you were starting to get noticed there were big possibilities opening up for you which as a young man as a young I mean what are you at, at this point you're early early 20s if even that uh 1920 yeah yeah many years ago now <laughs> yeah but still I mean you know at that age to have almost the world almost the world opening up to you at that point must have been extremely exciting yeah again unexpectedly um like obviously I had goals and and even still at that stage like to try and be in the world championship was still a dream like I had no idea how to still go from New Zealand championship to Europe I hadn't even been on a big plane so I had no idea even where Europe was so um but like in 2007 even when we won our first rally in Whangarei again it just completely came out of the blue like I was always just pushing myself to to drive better and and perform and John was teaching me how to write pace notes and we're just constantly developing but you weren't like solely focused on results you're more Mm -hmm. focused on your personal development and how you got better as a driver and and just inside knowing if you've done a good job or not and irrelevant of what the time sheet said so then when we won our first rally in Whangarei it was like oh wow that was a surprise we weren't expecting that it was an international rally Yep. And then the expectations started coming that, you know, once you win your first, then you want the next, and then you want the championship, and it snowballs from there. And then uh, we missed out on the championship that year by one point, 
but I'd say that was probably one of the best things that happened to me because if we won the championship in, in our second year, um, it could have been easy to get into a mindset to go, oh, actually, this is pretty easy. We'll just mm. keep going like this. But after missing out by one point, we went away and then you had to dig deeper to make sure you didn't miss out by one point a game, which I think helped the development for the following years. And then it was, so this is 2007 now. So there was Rally New Zealand that year with WRC and Wales Rally GB as well. Yep. So, you know, that, that that's a, another huge step. And you're you're having great success at home. And then you do Rally New Zealand and you're alongside the WRC greats at the time. Tell me a little bit about that experience, what that was like. It's definitely a reality check. Um, and I'm sure <laughs> lots of people are going through this in national rallying that, you know, when you're in your national rallies, obviously competition's good and the rallies that you know. As soon as we went to Rally New Zealand, you know, we thought we'd be more competitive than what we were. Um, when all the international teams come over, it just gave you this reality check to go, actually, wow, okay, they're fast. And they were coming onto our home turf and showing how fast they were. Mm. But then the biggest wake-up call is, like when you say, we went to Wales that year, um, and uh, Reese Jones, the guy who was helping us out a bit that year, gave us an opportunity to drive one of his cars over there. And holy hell, even straight from the recce, it was like, this is completely different. And... Um, Back then, we used to think that was rough. And, okay, now experiencing what we've experienced, Welsh forests are not necessarily rough. But coming straight from New Zealand um, and then also the fog, the rain, um, just doing a WRC recce with all these cars passing by, you're like, what the hell is going on? You're in this <laughs> rental car, you've got punches, you've broken down on the side of the road half the time. You're just in complete awe of what was going on. Um, you'll never really focus properly on fully on the rally. So, um in fact, I think we broke the steering on stage one and then rejoined and then the subframe fell out of it on day two. So it was a big adventure, but um, it was <laughs> a real wide awakening. Baptism of fire. Oh, <laughs> it was, it was. But um, it was exactly what you needed though because it was a bit like when we missed out winning New Zealand Championship at one point, it gave you this this massive reality check to go, okay, there's a lot to work on here. So it gave you a bit to sleep on and go home and, and try and be better. What was it like, though, being part of then the, the WRC community and you're, you're in contact with so many people who, who are like a, a family? Was there anyone at all giving you advice? Did you ask anyone for advice? Did you make friendships back then or did that come later? Oh, like John was a massive part, as I say, because mm. he'd been there, done that. He'd seen a lot in the WRC and everything. And um he was, I was always just a sponge around John. I was always, especially, you know, you spend so much time together in recce's. I'm just, especially as a teenager, you're just constantly asking questions and probably annoying him, but he was obviously always very patient with me. Um, and then, yeah, John was able to give me a lot of insight and, and how it all worked and, and bits and pieces and probably didn't then develop any further relationships within the WRC until we did the Pirelli Star Driver year in 2010. And then, of course, he sort of got introduced into the community a bit more and got to know more people and um, even within that team environment there was a lot of good people that you're able to sort of lean on and, and learn from. The Pirelli star driver thing was was pretty special I really enjoyed what what Pirelli did with that program because it you know it basically to kind of conceptualize it all it was picking the, the best from various areas ar around the world bringing them together and you were part of that, but it was a couple of years. So obviously, we we were ch chatting about two two thousand and seven. The next couple of years, then you continued on at home before Pirelli Star Driver came around. Yeah, uh, we well, we had a goal to win New Zealand Championship, so 
um, we went out and through some of John's advice, we thought part of the process, because by this stage, we're going, okay, Europe's where I want to be, WRC's mm. where I want to be. Um, so we went through the process of making sure we could write our own pace notes. Um, so the first rally, we wrote our own pace notes on, we won, which was from our own. The next step were, was to have a left-hand drive car, because in New Zealand, you don't think about stuff like that. You know, for us, right-hand drive's normal. Yeah. And John suggested, hey, look, if you go to Europe, you're not going to have many opportunities to shine, so you need to be prepared. So that means you need to learn left-hand drive now. So we, we brought a left-hand drive road car into New Zealand uh, as a brand-new road car, and then um, our own team built this car up from scratch as a left-hand drive car. So the next couple of years, we got to learn that car. We were able to win the championship twice. Um, and then, of course, the, we knew the next step for us to go from New Zealand to Europe uh, is that we needed something to fill that gap. And obviously, the Pirelli Driver Scholarship opportunity was a way to fill that gap financially to give us that, that leg up. So, because um, the go from New Zealand, and it's still the same issues now, the go from New Zealand to Europe, the costs go up tenfold and you're still doing the same mileage on rallies. You're still competing in the same car, but everything goes up 10 times. So yeah, to fill that financial gap is a massive challenge. And obviously we're so fortunate with the Pirelli scholarship. Um, without that, we definitely never would have got to WRC. Um, so it definitely gave us a big opportunity. And um, we missed out on it in the first year. Um, Mark Tapper, a fellow Kiwi, had it the first year after we had a, an incident um, on the qualifying rally. Yeah. which I thought that was the end of the world. But then as it turned out, by actually winning the Pirelli Scholarship in the second year, it actually probably gave us a better chance because I think in year one, there was a few reliability issues with the cars and mm. the drivers who were part of the program probably didn't get a fair chance because they weren't finishing rallies. Um, yet when we come in year two, um, all the gremlins were ironed out in the cars and we had a good reliable package and we could actually get in and learn the rallies. Remind me then who who you were alongside that year in Pirelli Star Driver. Was Oit part of it that uh, Oit, year? Oit, yeah, Oit, uh, Peter Horsey um, from South Africa, Nikolai Georgia, and no, oh, no, you're putting me on the spot now. Um, was um, there a Finn? No, Oit. No, Oit was... represented the, yeah, yeah, Europe, yeah, and well, yeah, the Baltics and Nord. I'm trying to think what region we're missing. Someone, oh, um, Alex, Alex Rashi, the Italian. Ah, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yes. yeah. So y- yeah. It, that was an interesting year with with interesting people. I mean, you know, I remember, I think I remember hosting one event for that, as in like an introduction for you guys to the media, and Phil Short saying to me, um, yeah, we've got uh, we've got a driver who doesn't talk a lot in fact you know it's just one words really and that was all obviously <laughs> he was like so you know good luck with him on the stage but you know as we all know it does talk <laughs> but you just need to get it out of him how did you find did 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 you manage to get Oitanak to talk back in the day uh, I think we we're all pretty quiet that year to be honest we we're all yeah. pretty fresh based and uh sort of thrown the deep end and um <laughs> But like for us, it was the first time also working with teammates. And as mm. you're, especially you're young at that stage, you're super competitive. It's like, you just want to beat your teammates. Yeah. So I remember the first rally we all did was Turkey and Phil Short, um, Uncle Phil, um, who was, uh, I guess, trying to keep us all in order. He, you know, very clearly before the start of the rally, you know, make sure that we all get through and finish. And um, this is about building experience and, and getting the knowledge for the future. And of course, the first rally was like an absolute nightmare for the whole Pirelli Star driver thing. So yeah. I remember Turkey, for us, I mean, it's so rough as well. You know, it's a difficult uh, rally. Well, for us, uh, and a big learning process for us, but we went through and did the recce. And then, but they didn't put the chicanes in until after the recce. They built the gravel 
chicanes in the middle of the road. So stage one, we come over flat over a crest in fifth gear and we'd miss one of the chicanes in Ruki and we end up beached on the middle of a chicane. So we're out on day on day one. I think another car caught fire. Uh, another one crashed. Then Oit had a big crash, I think, on the last day. So pretty much everyone retired. And I remember the discussion after Turkey is probably the strictest, um, most brutal conversation I've had from a team manager ever before with Phil basically saying, if we all continue like this, the program will be finished. Uh, we'll work, we won't be doing any more rallies. We all need to pull our heads in and uh, make sure we uh, we finish some rallies. So um, it was a pretty rude awakening to the Pirelli Star program for all of us. Mm. Um, and then from there on in, I think we're all a bit more settled down after that. Yeah, it, I mean, he's he he can talk the talk, Phil Short. And, you know, when he's been, <laughs> he looked after the Pirelli guys, the junior championship. I think with Phil's wealth of knowledge, you know, and all that he's done and all the drivers he sat alongside, you can totally respect everything he says because he's come from yeah, such a, a power background and he's got your best interests at heart. But yeah, Uncle Phil, I like that. <laughs> he no, that awesome, as well. yeah. he, like he, he helped us learn so much as well throughout the whole uh, the whole season and helped mm-hmm. us manage our own expectations and how to plan the events and get the most out of the year. And um, he's done a lot for a lot of young drivers within the yeah. sport. So we're how, very how lucky we, to have him. Definitely. How would you say the, the learning curve for you was, you know, coming from New Zealand and then stepping onto the world stage? Was it a was it a big step up in terms of a learning curve? What what do you think if there was one area you had to say, or oh, this is where my learning went through the roof, this is what was dramatically different, what would it be? Uh it's probably a bit later on, actually. The learning was probably more in the WRC team when you had access to that sort of data and engineers yeah. and bits and pieces. Um prior to that. Like probably so driver, the, the biggest eye opener was just, just the the variety of roads and stages, like from rally to rally to rally. Whereas in New mm. Zealand from rally to rally, everything's much the same. The whole championship's pretty similar. Obviously in the WRC, every rally is completely unique and completely different. And it was a matter of trying to adapt to that. Um the biggest thing also was adapting to rough conditions, because in New Zealand we never get ruts or anything rough in the roads, and then all of a sudden you come to these rallies in Portugal or even Finland on second pass, and the roads are yeah. destroyed, and you're like, "How do you even drive a rally car through this stuff?" So, um, just trying to learn and adapt to all that stuff. But that that first year of Pirelli for us, I just went in with the same. Obviously, I had goals, but during the season was not trying to have too much expectation on myself and just trying to focus on driving and learning and letting yeah. the results naturally come. And, you know, sometimes that that is the key, isn't it? Just letting it all naturally flow. Uh, for you, the Pirelli Star Driver was, uh, you know, a great opportunity like it was for many, but you were <coughs> still concentrating very much on on what's going on at home and moving on from that, focusing on the production World Rally Championship as well. And I think that's when, obviously, I, I remember meeting you during Pirelli Star Driver for the first time. And then we were all very keen to see what you were going to do because you were doing well in PWRC. But how did it move on? What did Pirelli Star Driver give to you moving forward? Uh, Obviously, as I say, it gave us that leg up, but we knew uh, to make the most of the opportunity, we had to stay there. We knew if we disappeared um, that the get back again was going to be twice as hard. So we had to use the momentum of that Pirelli Star driver to stay in 2011, but obviously we knew we had to come up with the funds. That was that was the only downside of the Pirelli Star driver. Like it was a massive opportunity, but there was no follow-on. 
Um, so you're back on your own again. So we had to find a million New Zealand dollars to do the PWRC that following year. Whoa, it so, sounds like such a lot of money. <laughs> uh, yes, it is. And everything in New Zealand, so it's always effectively twice as expensive with the exchange rates effectively. So um, half a million euros, but you know, effectively a million Kiwi. So yeah, we had to go and, and try and find a way to fund that. And you know, at that time and even in the years prior to that, you know, here in New Zealand, a lot of people told, told us it wasn't possible. Um, obviously, Possum was just starting to do it the year he passed away, but there wasn't really a perceived pathway for us to go, okay, yes, a fellow Kiwi's done it this way, he funded it this way, we can try and copy that sort of template. We had nothing. Um, we had some templates for what circuit drivers were doing, like Scott Dixon in terms of shareholders and, and trying to get investors involved. So uh, that's the route that we went down because um, the problem with sponsors in terms of here in New Zealand is firstly, you know, corporates and everything in New Zealand are a lot smaller. But also when you're competing on the other side of the world, there's not a lot of advantage for you if you were trying to showcase their brand in yeah. Europe, but they sell everything in New Zealand. So the, the sponsorship thing's quite hard in terms of rallying internationally. So we went down the shareholder route. Um, and then back in 2011, that was still with the old promoters where they had the penalty fee in place. So once you committed to enter, entering the championship, if you missed a round, there was huge penalties. It was some, I think something like 50,000 euros a round that you missed. Um, so when we, I didn't know that. I had no yeah, idea so about that. You got penalised. Um, it was all on the regulations, all the sporting regulations. So once we entered in January 2011, uh, when we put the entry in for the championship, our bank balance was zero. So we had no dollars in the bank. We committed to doing the full sixth round PWRC, and we were all in. Um, so <laughs> luckily, we went out and sold our story, sold our dream, got investors on board, and it that first year couldn't have gone any better for us because the more that we're winning, the more that more investors were coming on board. So mm. we went out and I think we won the first four in a row. Yeah. And and the, it wasn't easy. It's never easy when you're raising that sort of that sort of money, but we were getting investors on board and, and it was all sort of falling into place. So um, Who was doing the chat, Hayden? Who was doing the chat to sell all of this? Were you doing the chat? Because you're such a humble guy. I I I, um, I I I just can't imagine you selling yourselves. You'd be like, yeah, I'm pretty good behind the wheel. Uh, give me some money. No, I, I let, let the results do the talking. I just okay. like, yeah, let the results do the talking. But um, between myself, uh, my father, and we had uh, three directors part of the company. So um, between the five of us, we were doing all the talking. Um, I was pushing a lot though, like right from when I was 12 years old, um, going out and getting my first sponsors when I had the money. I've always been out there talking to the business owners and people and um selling the dream because to be honest it's it's better coming from me like I don't like blowing my own trumpet but I can tell the story I, mm. you know, like for me it's something I'm so passionate about what I'm doing um it's easy for me to, to relay that passion and 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 sell the dream of what we're trying to do because effectively when we're trying to get the investors on board we're just trying to get them to live the dream with us um you know it's an opportunity for them as well to be excited by it and they may not be able to drive the car but they can still live the journey with us and it's trying to sell them that, that dream and that journey so um i was all the time on the phone and um i've always done it as well though so for me it, it didn't feel any it didn't feel abnormal it just felt that's what i do i've been trying to search responses and work with companies for many years and um yeah it was just part of part of what we had to do and it worked obviously it was a long working process and it was getting you success and you got the success by winning 
the PWRC championship that year, which I, I really remember vividly interviewing you when you won and, and thinking how humble you were and how I think we all wanted you then to go on to succeed because there was no way on God's green earth you were going to grow ahead, you know, as big as a melon because you seemed so together. You seemed so, you loved doing what you were doing. You all had it all under control and you were winning and you were so grateful for all of that. And I think the partnership with you and John was something lovely that we all talked about. And and your story was so great that everyone was willing you to, to move on. I can imagine winning the championship was a, a satisfaction, but also it's like then, well, what happens next? Because you've still got to keep pushing and pushing. It's it's relentless. There's no golden ticket of, there you go, Hayden Padden. You've won the championship and there's next year for you. It's pretty difficult still, even with the championship win under your belt. Uh, it's a pretty cutthroat sport. And I'd probably say even more so now than what it was 10 years ago. It was still pretty hard 10 years ago, but there was nothing handed to you on the plate. Um, you know, like you say, a championship win didn't guarantee you anything for the previous year. So um, I actually remember we had to make, because then obviously the natural progression from PWRC um, was then SWRC, which is equivalent, I guess, to WRC too. Yeah. But obviously to do that, we had we just established a partnership with Subaru, which I really, that was something I really pushed for because in 2011, we made the change from Mitsubishi to Subaru. and But it, it seemed like the right thing to do because we're going into PWRC um, in terms of that's the same as what Possum Bourne was doing. He was obviously yeah. affiliated with the Subaru brand and we really liked the synergies that were there and, and what we we're trying to do. But then obviously to go on to SWRC, there was no Subaru. You had to go for Skoda or Ford or or some one of those S2000 model cars. But I remember at the end of 2011, we built a pretty good relationship with Subaru. They're obviously pretty happy we won the championship. Mm. And they made us an offer actually for a fully funded drive the following year in a R4 Subaru. So that was obviously like the next spec of Group N car, but they weren't competitive enough against the S2000 car. But that was effectively a million dollar program and it was fully funded. It was a good opportunity. But we felt that wasn't going to help our career because we remember having the discussions at the time going, okay, but is Subaru going to come back in the WIC? Like, is there a cherry yeah. at the top that if we carry on this partnership, can it go somewhere? And for us, it just seemed like a dead end. And for we made the call to turn down that offer of a fully paid drive and instead had to go find another million dollars to then go and do our, our own private thing in a Skoda because we felt from a career perspective, because obviously by this stage, we were very focused WRC is where we want to be. Mm. Um, we knew we had to be in an S2000 car and we had to try and prove ourselves in that. So that was a big thing for us because money was so hard to come by and for us to turn down a big program like that to instead go out on our own. Um, yeah, luckily it worked out, but that could have gone either way, that decision. I, there's crossroads, aren't there, in, in your kind of life, in, in all of our lives. And that sounds like a bit of a big crossroads that you were being offered this and it would be a lot easier if you could take this but it wasn't going to do your career any good really that's it is a big decision to make did you have any sleepless nights making this decision or oh, a lot it, of sleepless it, nights yeah I, I think you regretted it probably almost for a year or as well especially with the way that the next year panned out <laughs> it wasn't a great year for us the following year so you're constantly thinking did we make the wrong decision but hey that's life as well yeah yeah Everything works out for, well, everything happens for a reason as well, which yeah. is what I've sort of come to the conclusion on. It was a bit of a tough year. It wasn't what you wanted in in SWRC. And I think at the end of it, was it fourth in the championship or something like that? Well, we 
We could have won the championship, though. Uh, it come down to the penultimate round. I very, I very vividly remember we were leading going into France um, in the Alsace on the third day, yeah. and it was the, the wet day. And I think we had like a 40-second lead. And we just come around a hairpin and just went slightly wide, and the car just caught maybe six inches of the grass, and it just got sucked into the ditch. But two wheels of the car were still on the road, like in the middle of the road, and it was just stuck on the side of the road. And we got stuck there, and that was the end of our rally. And if we won that rally, as we're in a position to, we would have went into the last round in Spain, I think the last round was. Spain, yeah. Leading the, lead, lead the championship. But because we then DNF'd on the last day, we then had no chance of the championship. So our championship got completely tipped on its heels um, at that penultimate round. And I remember, I'm not a hugely emotional person, but I remember disappearing behind the hay bales where the car was stuck just in absolute tears. I'm like, yeah. this is not this is not possible the car's on the road and we're stuck so that was a, a massive blow frustrating and one thing we haven't talked about here you, you've mentioned how you know we all know how fa- fabulous the roads are in, in New Zealand and their gravel tarmac was such a, a an alien thing to you really when you came to the championship but you did master it and you had some good results on tarmac. How difficult was it for you to master tarmac? Uh, I don't know if master is the right word, but um, <laughs> uh, still still learning. But it was different. Like the first tarmac rally we did was Germany 2010. Um, but again, just went in with the sort of no expectations type um, mentality and just went out and did the best job we could. And I think we ended up second in Germany. Mm-hmm. The next round was in France with the Pirelli Star driver again, and we were leading until we had an um, alternator failure. Um, and then even in the Super 2000, we were always quite competitive. So I actually enjoyed the tarmac. I I just hate wet, slippy tarmac because you just <laughs> you got no feeling at all. You just feel like you're driving with your, your butt cheeks clenched all the time. There's nothing enjoyable about it. But dry tarmac, I enjoy dry tarmac. And, um, yeah, it's just... It just naturally progressed and um this is like anything the more you do it the, the easier and better it becomes so it's yeah. the same in terms of just doing more tarmac rallies to, to get more comfortable <laughs> so after then the disappointment of the swrc year it was again it seemed to be there, there were some events in europe but not a huge amount it's more events at home than anything else what what was happening behind the scenes there well, we ran out of money, basically. So um, we had a massive big red digit in the bank balance. Um, even in 2012, the like even that rally in France, uh, where we were in a chance for the championship on the Monday before the rally, I remember getting a, an email from the team going, hey, look, we haven't received the payment. And then this is like a, one day before Ricky, and it's like, okay, we don't have the money. So that night, which is New Zealand daytime, um, I'm making phone calls, trying to find some shareholders to get some more money in and just get the payment through in time. Um, otherwise, we weren't going to have a car on the start line. So we were really, um, I guess, shoveling the bottom of the barrel to get as much money as we could for 2012. We dug ourselves a pretty big hole. So for 2013, we sort of took a different approach, going, okay, we need to generate some more funds, but the the investment avenue is starting to dry up a little bit. We need to go a little bit more back on the sponsor avenue, um, but to get the sponsors on board, we need to compete in New Zealand. We need to drive it home. That's mm. where the sponsors will invest in us. So that's when we come back home and <coughs> excuse me, and just started doing New Zealand rallies, started building the portfolio of, um, of our New Zealand partners and, um, and using that funds 
the excess funds that we could create from doing New Zealand rallies to do more international rallies, but that didn't mean you had to be at home a lot more. Yeah, and I suppose it's it's kind of putting putting the money in the bank, like you say, fill, filling up the piggy bank, and doing doing the rallies at home, impressing the sponsors. They put more money in the shareholders, and then being able to do a couple of events overseas, which is what you did. Um, and it, it's interesting to see. But I want to know during that year because the the very next year, the Hyundai deal is is coming into play. Do you want a minute? Are you all right? How did the Hyundai deal come about? <laughs> this is the big question I want to, because I don't know the answer to this question and I'm well, intrigued. To be honest, even I'm a bit still bamboozled by it. <laughs> um, I guess it happened over a long period of time. Um, it started back in 2013 where we had a limited budget to do some of those events overseas. So we're trying to cherry pick the events that we thought were going to help us the most and Obviously, at that stage, we knew Hyundai were going to be in uh, in the WRC for 2014. And, and we saw that as an opportunity for a brand that had a, a big reputation um, and representation in this part of the world that a driver from New Zealand could fit that marketing or, the, I guess, the image that they were going for. So um, one of the rallies was Ypres because um, we knew that Alain Penas, who was by then already appointed the team manager of Hyundai, that was his rally. So we we felt going to his rally. It was an opportunity for us to put ourselves um, in the on the shopping room um, floor, if you like. Yeah. Um, so following April, I, I remember then driving back to Elsinore to to meet with Alan and, and Michelle and and talk to them at the factory and introduce myself and talk a little bit about myself and bits and pieces. Uh, and then after that, we chose Finland and Germany, so we chose a gravel and a tarmac rally. Um, so we're trying to sort of showcase that we could be competitive on both surfaces. Um, and sort of just tried to push things along like that. And then the last piece of the puzzle was probably uh, later in the year, we were doing a rally in Australia with a Super 2000 car and it didn't go quite so well. But anyway, one of our supporters there, um, who's been a massive supporter of ours um, ever since, and family friends there as well, um, turned around and said, hey, look, what, what are we doing next? And um, to my father at the time, and then we said, actually, we don't have anything now. We've, we've run dry funds. We don't really have any opportunities. And so he popped up and said, hey, look, what, is it, what would it cost to, to get him in a World Rally Car for an event? And that's where the whole opportunity of us doing Rally Spain that year and the, um, and the Fiesta WRC car come from in, in terms of our WRC debut. Mm. And that was another, I guess, key part to show us or show people at Hyundai that were, you know, trying to get into a World Rally Car and show, show our intentions. And um, it all sort of started from there. And then, yeah, I think when I had the chat with Alain and Michelle, um, Firstly, like I'd probably be the first to admit that in terms of young drivers that were present at the time in terms of results and, and what the CV had, we probably weren't the strongest candidate. Um, but I remember going there and just selling myself and it was probably a bit forward. Uh, and, you know, they probably hadn't um, encountered it before. Like when you get a Kiwi who's passionate and is not going to let go of something, you're probably going to be a little bit annoying. But um I went in there and sold myself and, and tried to be confident about what I what I wanted to do and, and how I wanted to be a world champion and how I was going to work for it. And and this mm. was the right team for me and I could help, it could be a, you know, I could help Hyundai and, and, and so forth. So, um, and then, yeah, it just progressively went from there. And then, yeah, a random investor pretty much popped up out of nowhere in Europe. Um, 
that part of it was all a bit strange. Um, I remember there was a meeting at Frankfurt Airport that I had to fly into. That was a meeting literally at the airport, um, fly okay. in and then fly out. <laughs> and in between all that, discussions that I've been having with Hyundai New Zealand because I was just completely pestering Hyundai New Zealand with my CV and getting them to go to Hyundai Korea. Um, we're trying to go from every different angle. And then, yeah, um, Hyundai Motorsport offered us a deal for six rallies for 2014, which was just a dream come true. Um, but it's really, it's, I probably just complicated that by talking about it a little bit. There was not one pinpoint moment. It was like a whole lot of moments over probably, yeah. I'd say, an eight-month an eight period of us just constantly working on it on all these different channels and avenues that I guess then made the deal come to fruition. But as I say, I think we were very fortunate to get that deal because there were faster drivers out there than me, I think I feel at that time. Um, um, when you looked at just the result sheet. So uh, we were lucky to get that opportunity. And then of course, once we got it, we had to make sure we made the most of it. Do you think then it was, you know, like you say that there were some faster drivers out there, but you were the whole package in that you knew how to handle yourself and and deal with with things on on a different level than maybe some of the drivers who've and I don't mean to say that they've been given you know something on a plate but they've just got behind a wheel and just done the job whereas you've got behind the wheel but you've spoken to sponsors you've got yourself halfway around the world so many times do you think it was the fact that you were the complete package that they went for that (laughs) To be honest, I'm not sure. And, and um, yeah, we, we certainly tried to promote that we're the complete package. We're probably a bit more of an unproven record because still at that time, we didn't probably have as much experience as others um, on terms of European rallies and WRC. We're still pretty mm. young and new and we were learning. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what um, analysis they did in the background, um, but for sure, I, I think we we're probably a risk, but I guess any young driver you bring into a team is a risk. And um yeah, I think we proved the concept that we're willing to work hard was probably the biggest part. We'll, whether we were at the right level or not, we were willing to make sure that we would get to the right level. Um, and luckily, they're a very good team to work with to help me work in the background to, to, to work together um, mm-hmm. to, 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 to get to that level. And I mean, what a what a vast change I can imagine after years of looking after yourself in terms of doing everything, suddenly you're with a team who are now looking after, I mean, people might be like, oh, well, what are you talking about? But looking after your logistics, someone's there looking after all of that at a very, you know, at a, a very basic level, the logistics is covered. You don't have to think about that. You don't have to think about how you're going to fly from from Auckland to, to Frankfurt anymore. Someone's got that covered for you. Everything is looked after and crucially, you're paid, Right. It was a pain, no, do you? Uh, <laughs> not, 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 not in 2014. Uh, okay. We are having the fund, we're having the fund um, part of it, which come through this mystery investor. Through this mystery investor. Um, so so a, we, I can imagine this mystery investor in kind of dark glasses and a Mac and a hat. So this is how I see <laughs> this mystery investor. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so we still had the paper 2014 and okay. 2015. So we had to fund the first two years. Okay. Um, but yeah, like, it was a complete eye opener. Like even Ricky lunches, you didn't even have to worry about what food they eat because it was all <laughs> supplied. Like normally you have to go make your ham cheese sandwiches before you left and make sure you had your packed lunch and your muesli bars and bits and pieces. You, you, like it was a real eye opener. And um, mm. like uh, it took a little bit to adjust, to be honest, because once you're in that environment, your job as a driver is just a driver mm. and obviously preparing the best you can in terms of physical training, preparing for the rallies with the pace notes and the videos and, and whatnot. 
Um, but outside that, there wasn't much else. Whereas obviously when you're at home, you're working on cars, you're cleaning the cars, you're, you're doing everything. But there was an element where you had to respect the engineers and the technicians for the job that they did and, and they respected you for the job that you did. So you had to had to learn to separate yourself a little bit from some of the more hands-on stuff and just focus more solely on the driving side. What a bargaining chip you must have had then in 2015 when you get your first WRC podium, you get your first WRC win, but you're not completely fully, you know, you're you're part funding this program. What a bargaining chip that must have been to go, right, next year, <laughs> you're going to pay me the big bucks. <laughs> well, it was always, it was always, again, about having every goal. So after we had that six year program, uh, sorry, six event program for 2014, the plan for 2015 is we wanted a full program. So we got a full program. We obviously still had to take some budget, but then following that, our goal was that we wanted a three-year contract. That was my one thing. It's oh, We want a three-year contract. Mm. So we went out, and then when we got second in Sardinia, that certainly helped us a lot. Um, probably the, the real selling point, though, was actually when the following rally, we got fourth in Poland. That was because it sort of, I think it proved that it wasn't a one-off and that yeah. we were being competitive on a regular basis. And then I remember after the Poland, we sat down with Michelle and Alain and um, and I was in there at a little cafe up on a hill and they presented a contract and I said, look, I remember one of the things I said, oh, look, there's only really one thing I'm, I'm looking for. And I'm, and they said, um, they, I want a three-year deal. And they go, luckily, we're thinking three years as well. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it was a strange old time, though, because that was really the only time we had some other offers on the table as well. Through 2000, 2015, we had um, two other teams um, really? put offers to us and um, yeah, put us in an interesting position. Uh, we had an offer with Citroen, so we were talking with Citroen in the background. We had a couple of meetings there, um, and probably one of the interesting ones uh, was a little bit later, but it was Toyota. Um, but that's where they had their their year with the well before they were ready. Yeah. So it was a year to step back into a Super Two Thousand or whatever it was that they were doing because they weren't ready until two thousand eighteen. Um, whereas obviously with Hyundai, they were going to be ready earlier. So at that stage, at that time, the Hyundai three-year deal was the best option for us. And um, prior to that, two years prior, when we first started working with Hyundai New Zealand, we first sat down and said, we want to establish a relationship here, similar to what Possum did with Subaru. That was what I aspired to. I wanted to create this loyal partnership. I want to be with Hyundai for a long time um, to be beneficial both ways. Um, and that was the loyalty thing that we probably started in 2014 with the brand. And, and that was a massive part of me saying, Hyundai's where I want to be. Yeah. Let's go back and talk about Sardinia and that that first podium because it was special. It was a special <laughs> rally. It was a fantastic battle that you had during the course of three days. And I think everyone was willing you to take, you know, the podium away. And at one point, is, is there the possibility of a win here in Sardinia? Um, but you took the podium away. And my favourite moment of the whole weekend was interviewing you afterwards after you jumped in the water Half my shoes off. Yeah, and we were just yeah. about to start the interview, and you went, "Do you mind if I take my shoes and socks off because they're really wet?" <laughs> I think I've ever interviewed anyone with their racing overalls on, but their shoes and socks off. And it, <laughs> I took a picture of the time, which I still have, and it kind of summed you up at the time. But what an amazing moment! What an amazing rally to get your first WRC podium on. Uh, yeah, especially because Sardinia the year before was our first ever WRC rally with Hyundai, and we had a horrid rally. It was super hot. We were super uncomfortable in the car. We didn't finish. 
The roads were really technical and twisty and rough to what we're used to. So we went back to Sardinia in 2015 with a mindset of, I don't like this rally. I didn't enjoy it the year before. Um, but everything just clicked. And it, and it started because that year we started down in Calgary, I think down the south, where we had the yeah. super special stage. We had to select our tyres the day before for the Friday. Um, and we put two softs in our package. So we had four hards and two softs. And I think everyone else had pretty much four hards. And going to the first stage on Friday morning, we parked up and I remember Yari Maddie was in front of us and we we're trying to decide what tyres, whether we put the softs on the car. And no one at that time had done, people were doing crosses, but no one had ever done hard in the front, soft in the rear. And I'm like, I don't want to do a cross. I don't like the cross. But there'd been a bit of rain that no one was expecting. And we're like, do we put the softs on? So Yari Maddie comes down to see what we're doing, goes, what do you got? And I said, I've got a couple of softs. And he said, well, I'd be putting them on. So that was my confirmation to go, okay, we need to put the softs on. So we put the two softs on the rear. We were the only one, the only car that had two softs on the car. And then of course we won the first three stages and had a had a good had a bit of a lead. So um that was a real bonus. But I'd probably say the real confirmation or well, what gave me more confidence is that myself along with everyone else, I thought that morning was just because we had two softs on the car. But then when we went out in the afternoon and we had the same tyres as everyone else, we we're actually still able to win um, one or two stages and able to actually hold our position. And that's what personally gave me more confidence to go, okay, we do have some speed here. Um, but never winning the rally was in my mind throughout that whole rally. It was just to come away with a podium we would have been more than happy with. So, um, yeah. yeah, it was a bit of a dream result. Good way to get the first podium. Yeah, and it to be honest, it was it wasn't really that long after. I mean, it, okay, you have to uh, look a year in, in until two thousand and sixteen for for the win, um, but it, it like you say, it felt like a win in 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 that event in two thousand and fifteen, and everyone I think was just like, you know, wow, look what what Hayden is doing here. Are we starting to see the start of him really kind of flying now? And two thousand and sixteen was just. Wow, it was a flyer of a year for you because you had the win, but you also had really consistent results as well. I think was it towards the end of the season? It was like a string of um, fourth places, but you had third in Poland as well that year and you were winning at home. So it was, does 2016 stand out to you as being one of the good years? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, obviously, when you win your first rally, it's something you never forget. So, um yeah, just everything clicked that year. Um, I was feeling really good with the car. It was obviously a, a new car, and it just sort of fitted my driving style, to be honest. Mm. Um, and right from the first rally that we did with it in Sweden, where we ended up second, and then um, obviously the one in Argentina. Yeah, there was there was a few bad things that year as well. We obviously went tried our best to go from here to zero after winning in Argentina, then crashing the next two rallies. So uh, I then remember going to Poland as um, – Probably the most pressure I ever felt as a driver because um, from wow. inside the team, there was obviously a lot of pressure on after having two accidents mm. that I couldn't afford another accident. I couldn't afford to do three in a row. And I felt like I was on the chopping block. Um, so, <laughs> I was so I was so nervous going to Poland. Um, so to come away and actually get that podium from a personal pressure perspective probably mm. meant more to me than Argentina. Um, wow. Because it just re it released the shackles again. It's like, okay, we're back. We're back on track. And then the rest of the year, okay, there was lots of fourth places, like you say. It wasn't wins or podiums, but we we're consistent then, at least till the end of the year. That's really interesting that you've, you know, Poland was more of a relief than, than Argentina as such. I put some question, yeah, you know, I 
said to people on Twitter that I was going to be speaking to you. And there was a lot of questions actually about Argentina and the win there. I'm just looking looking back. And it's, so many people are asking a similar question. And, you know, how did you feel going into the final stage in Argentina with, you know, Ogier not too far behind, knowing that you're on the brink of your first win, your first major success in WRC? You know, I'm saying it now and it gives you kind of goosebumps what on earth were you feeling on the, the start line of the final stage? Well, I've always described that Sunday in Argentina as a day or two halves. The morning was probably one of the worst mornings I've ever had. So it's the only time I've actually felt physically sick. Um, before the first stage on the Sunday morning, we had a 30-second lead. And just the pressure of that was was probably was starting to sink in. You're mm. up at the top of um, El Condor for the first mm. time and just feeling sick. Like you got OJ hunting you down, not confident at all. Uh, and then, of course, the next two stages, we lost a lot of time. And then going into the last stage, the confidence was probably an all-time low. Like, we're two seconds ahead. There's no way we're going to hold him off. Um, you know, he's obviously the master of this game, and and um, he's probably going to come through. But there was, like, this light bulb moment or the switch um, while we're waiting for the power stage. We're in the regroup at the top there of the El Condor. And I had the the iPad um, reviewing the stage, getting ready, and, and um, back back in like 2015, 2016, there was nowhere near as much onboard analysis going on as what, is mm. what there is now. Like now everyone does it. Back then, I was probably one of the early ones doing it on a regular basis. So um, I was actually lying under the car in the regroup so I could have shade, so I could actually see the, the iPad. Otherwise, I couldn't see it. And I think some people thought that I was trying to fix something on the car or something or something was broken, but I was just trying to watch the iPad to study the stage. <laughs> but... um. I guess between that and Seb and I, we had a bit of an, an altercation the night before um, after the press conference. I remember the, this. <laughs> yeah, there was there were some words exchanged that I didn't overly appreciate, and um, and that sort of gave me this anger, if you like. So we pretty much went into the last stage with this anger cloud over my gun. We've come this far. We've worked so hard. We've got ourselves in a position. I can't let Seb beat us. It was as simple as it was, mm. and then just went into this like trance type state of mind and pretty much drove the stage of my life. I, it, it felt so easy. It felt so smooth. Um, but then going back and reviewing the onboards and obviously what everyone else was saying, it was actually one of the roughest stages that we did that year, but it didn't feel it. It just, everything clicked. And um, yeah, it, uh, to come out and win by whatever it was, 11 seconds or something was, yeah. was much more than we expected. So it was a bit of a, if you like it's a dream way to win your first rally um if you like to actually fight for it right down to the wire and actually have to against push, like, a world champion as well hayden against definitely, a world champion who, who so um who is you know he's a when he's hunting someone he is relentless and psychologically he is in he's in your head he's trying to get into everyone's head i think that's one of his superpowers is that he can floor people psychologically you mentioned that altercation the night before was that about road position we were discussing something about road position at the meet the cruise session was it about that i can't remember but i remember you and seb having a a full on afterwards it was a lot of pointing <laughs> in chests going on i remember thinking oi 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 yeah, well, I guess when you're a bit younger, you're maybe a little bit naive. I guess as I got older, you mature a little bit more. But um, I've never been afraid to just speak my mind and to, like not over the top, but I, I mm. like just common sense to be, you know, at the forefront. 
Yeah. Um, and I think at that time, Seb was obviously complaining a lot about road position because he was, he was leading the championship all the time and always had the sweep the road and and whatnot. And I can understand it, but um, at the end of the day, he was in a position where he was obviously leading and winning. So that was part of the territory. So um, at one of the press conferences, it just felt like, uh, or at the day two press conference in Argent Argentina, it just felt like he's been really disrespectful to everyone else and that no one deserved to be where we were. And I just simply said to him as we're walking off the stage, going, well, what's the solution then? I just simply asked the question, what's the solution? Because um, you're complaining about it all the time, but what do we do? Mm. And I made the, the comment, like, if you want to exchange positions, I'm quite happy to lead the championship and sweep the road. Um, and yeah, he didn't he didn't really appreciate me questioning that. And he was, a, he, you know, I guess, um, slang back a few words in my direction that um, probably weren't so ideal. And, I, and he apologized for them the next morning. Um, but yeah, I was boiling. The blood was boiling. We had this, yeah, I'm sure. We're in the middle of the service park, and I was just shaking, and <laughs> we're like face to face, like right up, right up in each other's grills. And yeah, I've never had an altercation like that before. And yeah, I was a bit <laughs> taken back by it. But that's what fueled for me the last stage push is the just going back to that and just remembering that and going, okay, I can't let this happen. Yeah, he ain't gonna get me. <laughs> no. And you know, the, I can. I'm sure you can, but is it a bit of an out of body experience crossing the flying finish, getting to the stop control, looking at the board, realizing you've done it? Because you need to have all these things sink in. I don't know if the team had told you that you'd done it through the radio or whatever. Because I think radio comms, especially when you're up at El Condor, it's really difficult with all kinds of comms. We used to struggle no end with the radio stuff up there. How did you absolutely find out that you'd done it? Was it when you got to the stop control? Uh, I think Molly was the one who gave me the thumbs up at the stop control there because um, we had no idea. We had no radio in the car, <clears throat> so we had no comms with the team. And then, of course, when we got to the finish line, when they put the finish board up on the window screen, they actually put Seb's time up under the window wiper. So we couldn't see Seb's time. So we had actually no idea. And then John was asking for the board to be lifted. And then when they showed his time, I actually looked at John like, no, surely not, like, we didn't go 11 seconds quicker. So that's why I was in disbelief, like, that's not right. <laughs> and that's what I was trying to ask the people outside the car, like, have we really done it? So, and then, of course, they gave us the acknowledgement, and then it's like, okay, <laughs> that came out of nowhere. We weren't expecting that, because uh, I knew from the study that I'd done, I knew what Seb's time on the stage was the previous year. And when John read out our time over this finish line, I think we were like two seconds slower than what they went the previous year. So pretty much between there and the stop line, I'd reserve to the fact, okay, we haven't won this rally because we went slower than what Seb went last year. So um, I'd already accepted second. So yeah, when we got told we'd won, that was a bit of a surprise. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure. And amazing feelings to to have done it, to have achieved that. There's That's a major goal ticked off the list. And to everyone that supported you, not, 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 not only the people that are helping you monetary wise but the fans Hayden you've got such a huge fan base I mean I, I can't even begin to well I, I can begin to imagine because a lot of them were emailing us at the time or sending us messages on Twitter with pure delight and joy uh, they were up at some ungodly hour no doubt watching you you do that that must have been such an incredible thing and for your family as well to see you do that Oh, it was amazing. Um, we had some of our key supporters there. Dad was there. Um, it was awesome to share that. Like, <clears throat> Dad doesn't have it. He's, he's even probably less emotion than what, what I am, um, but he had tears no, in his eyes. No, it's not possible. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was just, it was cool to share that with those people. And then, um, 
yeah, obviously once once we got back home because we had to head home for a rally the following weekend, we arrived home to the airport and there's hundreds of people at the airport and doing a little haka for us and it's like four o'clock in the morning and yeah, there's lots of people there supporting us. So it's a pretty humbling experience. I know so many people are behind us and we're supporting us and still do support us. Um, it just makes it all so much more worthwhile with everything you're doing. It, it, it does, I'm sure. It's just a, a big... Yeah, it, it's such a help, I can imagine. And yeah, for someone like you, because as we mentioned, you are, you know, exceptionally humble, but to, to have that, I can imagine is, is lovely. But are you not, not, embarrassed is the wrong word. That's not the wrong, but are you a bit like, oh my God, all these people following me. Are, are you ever a bit shy around all of this or not? I'm a very shy person. Um, outside the car, like, it's, it's strange because, um, like I speak with my partner, Sarah, a, a bit about this as well, but because I've been, I guess, brought up around rallying my whole life, I've sort of been honed, you know, how I would talk with sponsors and how you talk with media. And and I love my sport. I'm passionate about the sport. I can talk all day about rallying and, and what I love with it all. But outside all that, I'm a massive introvert. I like to be the one standing in the back corner of, of a classroom. I don't like attention. Um so you walk out of an airport, for example, in this case, and there's hundreds of people cheering you and everything, and I just want to run away and hide because I hate the attention like that. I like, I love, I love the support, but just you know, the introvert side of me just goes, okay, um, I just want to hide. So um, yeah, I'm I'm quite a shy person outside, I guess, my hobby mm-hmm. and sport, which uh, a lot of people don't wouldn't believe, but um, that's my natural personality. Yeah, no, I, I can I can well believe it. I can well believe it. You talk about, you know, talking about rallying all day. I know I've kept you quite a long time already. So I'm going to speed up a little bit now. I want to talk about John. No, no, you're not. You you can, as long as you, you're you're happy to talk, I'm happy to talk. But I'm well aware that. You cut it down lots anyway, so. (laughs) I want to talk about John because, you know, 2016 was kind of the last full time year, wasn't it? Of John alongside you, you still Along, so it was. Was it one of the first of his many retirements? Yeah, I, think, I think he's retired two or three times, but yeah, he keeps coming back. He does. We can't, get, we can't, we can't we, keep a good dog down. We're all delighted about. But when he first mentioned to you, you know, oh, I'm I'm thinking of you know hanging up the the pace notebook. Were you completely devastated by that? Because what a long term relationship, and what a what an incredible relationship you'd had together. Yeah, well, that was a complicated one. Um, there, there was a few politics involved with that. Um, obviously, with yeah, well, there was just some discussions, but like John always had the mindset while he could perform and while he felt like he was bringing the best to the table to help us as a team, he wanted to be there. Um, but he was always of the, the understanding if he ever felt that he was slipping or um, if age was slowing him down in any sense, and he was the first person to put up his hand and go, okay, maybe I need to step away. So... Um, in 2016, we started doing some work with Seb Marshall, who was helping us a little bit in some of the testing because John wasn't always available just with the travel requirements because um, mm. it was obviously big commitments. And and then um, there was some talks. We were starting to talk about the idea of John going through until Rally Finland in 2017 because Finland was his first rally and, and we we thought it was about time for a transition just, I guess, to freshen things up a little bit. Um, mm. And obviously, we were looking at little, the bigger picture as well, like, at that time, we were trying to think of you know, maybe another five plus years involved in the WRC, and John yeah. didn't see himself involved with that high commitment level for that amount of time. So there needed to be a transition time. So 2017 is when we thought that transition time was going to be. So it's very much a mutual 
discussion and decision. Um, but then when 2017 started off real pear-shaped, um, then there was obviously some pressure from the team to go, we need to make this change earlier. Um, I didn't agree with it, but that was a decision that was made. So, and then um, obviously we built a pretty good relationship with Seb at that time. So um, yeah, the decision was made to bring Seb in, I think for the first rally in Portugal, um, which was probably about four or five rallies earlier than what was initially planned. Um, but then, yeah, John and I, we get on really well, even though we're quite different personalities, we get on really well and we know each other. So we're, mm. we're as good as a married couple after yeah. 18 years now. So um, of course, whenever we're doing rallies in New Zealand and other stuff outside WRC, he was always the first person. He loves, he's as passionate about the sport as what I am, if not more. So um, he takes every opportunity he can to, to get in the car. Yeah, and I, I just, even though Seb sat along alongside you for a couple of years, it's funny, when when I think about you and your career, it's always just you and John. And not that I've forgotten Seb, and we all love Seb Marshall, of course, but because John has been that mainstay for 18 years, I mean, come on. That's a, it's such a huge amount of time. And like you say, you get on so, so well. But I can't imagine anyone not getting on with John either because he's such a laid back character and what a good friend to have because he owns a vineyard. I mean, that's one of the best guys. Not for you, of course, because you don't drink, which has that been a decision right the way through your life? Did Was there a time where Hayden Patton was on the beers or not? Oh, I think there's all those, always those youthful stories where you've had a few too many and um, the not stories that you remember that fondly, but... Uh... It's never just done much for me, to be honest. A couple every now and then, but yeah, it's just not something that does much for me. So I've sort of stayed away from it. Yeah, well, it's saving John a couple of bob anyway, isn't it? You know, saving him a little bit of money because he doesn't have to be bringing you wine. Well, I might have to learn though, because obviously uh, my family's got a vineyard now in, in Central Otago, New Zealand as well. So I've got two avenues to be able to get wine, but I'm not <laughs> utilising that at the moment. So it's pretty poor, really. <laughs> So tell me how it was with, with Seb Marshall alongside then. How was it a different dynamic in the car? Uh, it was awesome. Like, obviously, Seb's an awesome person. Um, mm. Still to this day, we're, we're mates. And um, it was just a, it was, it was refreshing. It was just obviously with John for so long. Um, Seb was just the ultimate professional, jumped straight on the car, adapt to, to my pace note system. And then the first rally that we did together, we were leading in Portugal until we had a technical problem. The next rally in Sardinia, we were leading until I made a mistake. Um, so straight away, it just worked. It clicked. Um, and I think just, you know, when anything's new, it's refreshing. It just gives you yeah. a new lease of life a little bit, if you like, just a little bit more spark. And <clears throat> we just got on really well. And then, um, yeah, we had a really good um, year and a half together. And uh, that was really, really good times. Yeah, and it was it was interesting, especially uh, 2017 itself, because you you're you're doing WRC events, you're also doing events at home, you're doing other events like San Remo is there. It was a busy year. You were constantly in the car. Yeah, well, through 16, 17 were probably the two biggest years. Um, actually, <clears throat> 17. No, sorry, 2016 was actually the only year I did every round of the championship. Only one year, because in 17. We got dropped for Spain and 15, we missed Monty. And then obviously 18 was a part program. So in yeah. the five years that we did with Hyundai, only one of them was ever every rally of the season. So, um, but yeah, 17 was, was definitely the busiest year in that respect. So how did it come about then that this contract suddenly turns into a part program being from a full-time to a part program? Tell me the behind the scenes of all of this then. <clears throat> 
uh, it's politics really it's um mm. it's the beauty of any professional sport at, at the end of the day like i can respect that you know it's a cutthroat business um it's result driven so you need to be there delivering results and things and we obviously just had a terrible 2017 there's no way to avoid that and um sometimes it happens in sport um i do i believe in decisions that were, were made no i don't believe we we're given a fair shot um like we're in a position in 2017 and obviously the way the rules were working that year is if we obviously the first part is of the year is self-explanatory why it got off to a bad start but then even beyond that once we sort of started getting back on a straight and narrow we just we're having technical problem after technical problem then we're competitive but then the problem is when you got reseeded on day two you're always at the front of the field any opportunity to show any pace um on the gravel rallies because you're sweeping the roads again yeah. So we're just constantly on the back foot in 2017 and we just didn't have a chance to recover. And, and then we got dropped for Rally Spain out of the blue. Um, and then, yeah, we got dropped, half our program got dropped in th- uh, 2018, which I remember having the conversation with, with the management at the time saying, look, my goals would be world champion and this is going the opposite way to my goals. And um, there was almost a bit of a, a laugh at me that they didn't believe in what I wanted to achieve. And, um yeah we that was the way it was so we weren't happy about it the contract was very clear that we were supposed to be on a full program for 2018 um but we just had to accept it um there was no point fighting it we had to accept it went home reset over the off season and come back with a mentality to go okay we've got seven rallies let's actually make the most of these and we're not going to complain about it we're just this is what it is let's come out, make the most of the situation, put ourselves in the best position to try and get a contract for 2019. You mentioned the incident at the start of the year in Monte Carlo where the spectator was killed. How much did that affect you, Hayden, trying to deal with that? Mm-hmm. Were there people there to to help you? Did you get counselling? Do you even want to talk about it? You don't have to, <laughs> um, but it, it's there. It was part of... What's made you you? It was part of the the journey. How tough was it? Yeah, look, everything was tough. About obviously, no no tougher than what it was for the person's family. But yeah, obviously, the start of season like that as well, like the worst possible way. Brand new car, new era. Um, trying to get up to up to speed on a on a rally, I don't enjoy. Um, but yeah, just caught out with black ice, and I still remember you know sliding down the road sideways and seeing seeing the camera lens out the side window and the, the person just not moving because he's obviously on the camera and maybe got a different perception of what he's seeing through the lens. And yeah, <clears throat> the, the thump and, and everything. And there was not, there was nothing we could do. We we're just complete passengers throughout the whole corner. Um, so yeah, it was probably when I realized how much it affected me the most is when we went to the next rally in Sweden, uh, we did the shakedown and uh, we did the first run of shakedown, came at the end of shakedown and, um, I turned to John. I said, "This something just feels wrong." I was in tears after the first run, just going, "This just feels completely wrong." Not just in terms of competing, but just the car felt wrong. I felt like I was sitting in the wrong positions. Everything went back to service, and they said, "No, everything's exactly the same. The seats in the same position. The, everything's the same." And it just felt so abnormal for me. So the, the next two rallies was really a, a real big fight, um, just to really just get through them. Um, the head was probably not in the right place but yeah between the rallies and that no like this is the big thing that a lot of people don't realize is that when we come from New Zealand we we uplifted our whole life um, for six years living in Europe 
and when we're coming over there, like not complaining because we we're living the dream. I was obviously yeah. driving for a WRC team. It's a dream. But away from the WRC, we had nothing else. Uh, we didn't have any friends. We didn't have any family. We lived in Germany, didn't speak the language. Uh, you went home, you prepared for the next rally. Um, and then you're just basically waiting for the next rally. Whereas everyone else, they go home to Belgium or Finland or whatever. It'd be like me coming home to New Zealand now where you've got things to do. You've got people you can mm. train with. You've got your family, you've got your friends, you've got your social life. You've got that work-life balance, if you like. Yeah. And while we are in the WRC, we didn't. It was just 100% rally. So you lived the highs and lows through your life. So if you had a bad rally, you were basically dwelling over that when you went home because mm. that's that's the mindset that you're in. So after the Monty accident, yeah, it was tough. There was no support system. Um, there was an offer of a, of a dinner with team management, which I turned down because I just wasn't in the place to want to go out and socialize. I just preferred to hide. Um, but other than that, that was it. Man, and we're just expected to get back in the car in Sweden, which was obviously what our job was to do. And just had to get get on with the job and um yeah it was tough tried reaching out to the family they didn't obviously want to have anything to do with it um so there was never really any closure to it all to be honest and it sort of felt like it just got swept under the carpet a little bit um yeah. and yeah it was tough but had to move on and then yeah the year just <laughs> spiraled out of control really just seemed like anything we touched that year it just turned to custard um so yeah it was a it was a year to forget and there was a lot of I guess uh um internal searching to do um throughout the year and trying to rem- trying to remember why I do it and why I love yeah. rallying because I, I I stopped enjoying rallying that year um so that's why you know it was important for that big reset and come out in 2018 and actually get back to basics and just enjoy the rallying and and um remember why we're lucky to do what we love doing yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in, in, in 2018, to, to be able to do that, to try and find the love again, because there are so many drivers that, that, that go through losing the, the love of the sport for whatever reason, if they've just been hammered down, things aren't going right, and they, they lose the love of it. And then the way to come back is to maybe even to just do some stuff at home. I mean, I remember Craig Breen after, you know, losing his drive at Citroen, spent the whole of 2019 at home basically before he got his Hyundai gig as well and that was where he found the love of the sport again and sometimes it's like you say it's back to basics yep definitely and um yeah just going back to simplicity stuff just surrounding yourself by good people good teams good surroundings whatever um yeah you, you got to be happy in life you like even when and I, I probably I was a bit um naive in 2017 going no no I, I can get in the car I can focus that's my job and forgetting that everything that was going on around me and all the background noise, I was being naive to think that wasn't affecting me. But in reality, it was. And I think yeah. that's just something you learn. It's life lessons. As you get older, yeah. you learn all this sort of stuff. And you know that all the pieces of the puzzle have to line up. And then the easier it is for you to then, when you're on a rally, then the, the better the results are. So um, it's all about the preparation and, and, and what you do around yourself outside the sport as well. Absolutely, it is. I mean, I, you know, obviously the Hyundai... I want to say, I don't want to say the Hyundai thing came to an end because it feels like it hasn't come to an end because you still have such strong ties with Hyundai. But at at world level, at the end of 2018, it was, that was it then. It was back home, compete at home. Was there, you mentioned like, you know, there there was an anger about the way things had turned out, the fact that it had gone to the partial program. What did you take into 2019? What was the, the thinking going into that year? 
Uh, well, our whole plan for 18 was to try and put ourselves in a position to, to get a, a contract renewal for 2019. So throughout the second part of the year, um, we felt we'd done enough for that. And we had many meetings with management and we agreed on terms and we agreed that it was going to be a part-time program again. So another seven rallies, sharing it mm. with Danny. Our problem was probably a downfall was our loyalty to the brand in the sense that they Hyundai knew that we were not going to go talking to Toyota or Ford because we were stuck loyal to the Hyundai brand. And what that meant is that any contract, the actual, even, even though we'd shaken hands, we agreed on the terms, the actual piece of paper that we had to sign was just getting delayed, 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 delayed. Oh. And they knew that they didn't have to rush it for us because we weren't going anywhere. So they could sit us on the fence. So then, of course, when um, Seb Loeb obviously um, makes his comeback, the easiest person to drop is the one who hasn't signed the contract yet and everyone else had signed by this stage, even though we were pushing for about three months. We are just pushing, 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 and we just weren't getting the piece of paper. Um, so effectively, when a nine-time world champion comes, you take the opportunity you can to sign them, and we were the ones that didn't have a signed piece of paper. So because of that, we were left the hang up well held out to dry really uh, we had no opportunity and um yeah when we left rally australia in 2018 we believe we had a deal we were going to be in sweden in 2019 and then literally two weeks later um just before christmas we got the call and saying look sorry oh. we don't have a seat for you um and and probably the, the annoying thing was that you heard the rumors through the media and everything first yeah before you actually got a phone call and you're reading all these rumors like uh, surely not and there's probably disbelief and then when you get the phone call it's like oh so that was a bit crushing really um so, i'm not surprised uh, two weeks before christmas as well i mean timing jesus well it doesn't give you much time to do anything else so uh and i remember like probably the downside is uh, the emotions were probably a bit raw in terms of uh, you probably uh, uh, you know we felt like we're hard done by like i've grown up now and you probably i've learned that's just the nature of the business you learn it over time, but when you're a little bit younger and um, I remember um, the offer was made, oh, maybe we'll have one rally for you at Rally Finland or something. And I, I remember saying on the phone call at the time, so, I'm not interested in one rally. I want more than one rally, just as an off-the-cuff comment, like, uh, you know, come on, I'm thinking more than just one rally. Mm. Um, in reality, like, probably a regret of mine is if we turn back the clock saying, oh, if I took that one rally, um maybe there might have been more opportunities but in the heat of the moment when you thought you had a seven rally program and you just got turned down um yeah it was a, a bit raw i guess but also it, it, with one rally on offer you're kind of setting yourself up to fail in a way because that's one opportunity to shine how much pressure are you going to put on yourself to shine mm. that could ultimately end with you going off the road and then other people going well well you know He's come back one rally and he's off and this, this is what he's all about. And that's so not what you're all about. So it's, it's, a, I think it was a good decision to turn down one rally, even if there could have been other options off the back of it, because you yeah, know, it could, could have gone horribly wrong. Well, we obviously tried to come back and do one rally anyway with the Fiesta the following year. We weren't, yeah. we weren't going to sit down and do nothing, but obviously that wasn't meant to be. We couldn't even get to the start line of that one. Um, but yeah, we weren't prepared to sit at home, though. We, like, we weren't going to give up. We were trying to find other opportunities to get our name out there and try and open doors and everything. But obviously, it just that year with the accident in Finland and testing and then, of course, the bushfires at Rally Australia, we didn't really get the chance. And then um, the following year, COVID, come and that yeah pretty much locked us in New Zealand for a couple of years so um we tried <laughs> really and even in, 
even in 2020, I think we were talking about a four rally program with Hyundai and a privateer team. Um, there was a, an offer there and then literally as COVID started, that contract got ripped up. So um, that was going to be something that was going to be half funded through um, here in New Zealand as well. So in 2020, we had a part program that was nearly ready to come to fruition and didn't as well. So um, we tried and tried and tried and it just wasn't meant to be. It wasn't meant to be, but you you know, you know, kept your your ties with Hyundai you still keep your ties with Hyundai you're you're still rallying in a Hyundai um and even during you know COVID year okay there was only two events but you seem to kind of then go into yourself and it's like right I'm gonna decide what's gonna happen for myself in the next few years and it, it feels like tell me if I'm wrong but from the outside looking at you now it it feels to me as if you're like okay I haven't got a manufacturer drive as such but I'm going to be Hayden Padden and I'm calling the shots and I decide what I do. I can't imagine you being back in a team now with the strength that you've given yourself over the past few years, because you are the man calling the shots at the end of the day. Uh, well, well, luckily I've got a good team around me, which makes it obviously easier, but yeah, it definitely lit a fire inside to go, okay, too many things have happened outside our control. And um, I'm probably a little bit of a control freak and, and I always <laughs> have been. And, uh, I don't like being a puppet and it just felt like you're just being dragged left, right and center. And, uh, and it's like, okay, let's take, take control of our own destiny. Obviously we can't do it to the same level as yeah. a privateer team, but it's like, let's just build our own team. Let's do it our own way. Let's do it the Kiwi way. And yeah, that's what we started to put in place now and um, just building up to that. And, and long-term, yeah, I'll, I want to lead a team is the biggest thing for me. Obviously I love driving. I still want to drive, but I love the team element. I love taking a team through the win. I want to win world championships with a team, whether that's as a, a team principal or whether that's as a driver or both or whatever it may be. Um, but I'm very passionate on that side and, and time to lead. And um, But in saying that, like, I still want some closure on the WRC. Like, I know I can't get back and do full-time WRC and everything. That, that ain't going to happen. But I want some closure with a WRC rally at some point, whether that be if Rally New Zealand comes back trying to do it in a world rally car or trying to pick one or two rallies in the next year or two to do a world rally car. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is we did rally Australia in 2018 and we didn't even know it was our last rally. I'd like to be able to do a rally in the world rally car and like as a bit of a sign off to go, okay, this is our last rally. We're going to enjoy it. So, um, so I haven't given up and trying to do at least a one-off or a couple of rallies um, in, in the, over the next couple of years in a world rally car. But for right now, you're leading the European Rally Championship. You decided to embark on a, a season in the ERC this year. How have you found it? And what was the reason behind coming to do that? Uh, loving it. It's an uh, awesome championship. Really enjoying it. Um, I, I guess there was a, probably two factors behind why we decided to go that way. Obviously, when we started with our team there last year with the Rally 2 car, the initial idea was WRC2. We did a couple of rallies there last year. But obviously in WRC2, that's the place when you're a young driver trying to come through the ranks, that's definitely the place where you have to be. That's where you need to prove your worth and you're learning the, the, the rallies and getting the experience. But for someone who's a bit more washed up like me, I don't need to necessarily prove myself in that sense anymore. Like we're doing it one to enjoy. Um, I want to enjoy the rally and that's, and that's first and foremost, but also two something that's logistically possible for us as well. And, the WRC rallies we found in the Rally 2 cars were just very rough. And I, I felt sometimes there's too much of an element of luck and I don't like relying on luck. Um, but secondly, and probably the most important thing for me is I was saying I'm a pretty competitive person. 
trying to win class doesn't float my boat as much as trying to win a rally. I want to win rallies. Um, when you're trying to win your class, and I'm not taking anything away from WRC2 at all, it's just where I am in my life and in my career is that I want to fight for rally wins, and obviously that's just not possible in WRC. So um, ERC gives us an opportunity, whereas with the Rally 2 car is the main class of car. So all of a sudden, you're fighting for rally wins. The roads are not destroyed because um, you're up the front on the roads, even on second passes, still in relatively good condition, so you can enjoy the rallying threat and... I must say, like the competition this year and the depth of competition in the European Championship this year is unreal. Like 20 or even sometimes up to 30 fast drivers. If you have a bad stage, you can be outside the top 20. Um, you've got so many young fast drivers coming through who are going to be future stars of the sport. You've got people who are a bit more experienced, like sort of Mads and myself. Um, you've got national heroes who, who pop up who are super fast on, on selected rallies and there's just so much variety. Every rally is different and I just love it. It's just yeah. a really cool challenge. And um, obviously I, I like trying to go for challenges and do things that haven't been achieved before. So when we're doing a study about the European Championship at the start of the year and, and went through the, all the lists and and uh, noticed that there was no non-Europeans that had won it before, that all of a sudden was a thing going, okay, this is something cool that we can try and achieve. And um, so, yeah, I like trying to tick boxes that haven't been ticked before. Well, yeah, you're certainly doing that. I have to go through some of these questions to round things off because so many people sent stuff in. Eyes Amusing is asking, what's your favourite rally car to drive? Rally. You can't go past a world rally car, to be honest. Like mm. the, the engineering in a world rally car, they are a proper car. You just drive them flat out. Um, I would say uh, our hill climb car in New Zealand, when we put the 800 horsepower engine in it, it's quite exciting. Um, it definitely gets adrenaline going. Um, and yeah, probably a BDA Escort in terms of two-wheel drive stuff. An old um, historic rally car. That's a lot of fun. Nick is asking, what's what's the biggest challenge slash hurdle other than travel for a driver from your neck of the woods in the world trying to break into mainly Europe? What was the biggest hurdle? Purely funding. Uh, like everything down here is a lot smaller in terms of what budgets are available. Obviously you've got exchange rates um, and you just, yeah, it's just a massive funding um, gap, which is the biggest challenge. Nigel is asking, are you coming back to rally Caradigion to defend your title? I would love to. I would love to. Unfortunately it doesn't work with the calendar this year, but we're talking to them already about trying to come back next year. So but Brilliant. I must say I was, I was super surprised by the rally last year. So um, definitely want to come back again. Yeah. Um, and then Craig in kind of the same vein is saying, when is he coming to our famous Donegal stages? Now, have Everyone you rallied in Ireland? Have you rallied never in rally- Ireland? I didn't never think you had. Ireland. No. I've seen a lot and it looks like it's terrifying in terms of bumpy tarmac, but uh, it looks, <laughs> it's definitely on the bucket list. Um... So Martin asked a few questions. He asked a really great one, which we've talked about, which was how you felt before the uh, the power stage in Argentina. Um, but he says, once it was a situation that your WRC entry was cancelled. Uh, sorry. Hold on. Have you felt the WRC seat is now becoming harder to secure for the future for yourself and in general for people? Uh, a lot harder, definitely a lot harder. There's obviously less opportunities now. There's obviously one less team compared to 10 years ago. Um, 
but also the cars are so much more demanding for for young people to drive so you can have as much experience as you want in a rally two car but to step up to a rally one car is so huge mm. that you need to give a driver time and this i was speaking to oliver solberg about this here in sweden is that you know when we come into wrc we probably had a year of no pressure time to learn um and to get up to speed and like sardinia was our first podium was a year later like you need to give young drivers at least a year in one of these cars to to learn get up to to get up to speed and to be in a yeah. position to be competitive but i think nowadays there seems to be too much expectation because also they're scoring manufacturer points a lot of the time so there is the expectation that they need to perform whether like again when we did it we never scored manufacturer points for the first year so there was never any expectation or pressure from the team so maybe there needs to be something in the sport to try and take that pressure away from a third car to allow young drivers to come through in a at least pressured type environment uh martin is asking you kind of answered this in a way could we see you in a rally one car again and that would be a firm yes you want to be to hopefully, hopefully. hopefully. John is asking, what is your favourite New Zealand stage? I'm keen to hear this answer. Well, the obvious answer in New Zealand that we always talk about is Curry Bush, which is definitely a, a cool stage. But there's so many good stages in New Zealand. <laughs> I can't actually pick one. Um, like these awesome stages at Rally Otago, awesome stages at Whangarei. You've got the likes of Tiakia North, Tiakia South at Rally New Zealand. Um, if you're to pinpoint one, I'd probably say Tiakia South is a standout stage for me. Okay. Why? It's just got a bit of everything. Fast flowing, cambered, commitment, uphill, downhill. It's just got a variety of everything. So probably Perry Bush and Tiakia South. There you go. It's one on the South Island, one on the North Island. And Mixter then to, to round that off is asking for your favorite WRC stage. Oh, there's a lot to choose from there. Man, yeah. Um and I'm terrible. I don't remember stage names. I don't remember stage numbers, which is probably not so relevant anymore. <laughs> but um, um, I, I probably actually say one of the favourite ones is, and you'll probably know the name of it, is Argentina on day two where we do the stage up along the top of the hills. The really fast. Open... Oh, Los Gigantes, the long one. Possibly the long one. That's that's, that's nice really stage. rough. It's well, it's not really rough, but it's uh, got some big. Big rocks alongside it. Yep, yep. It's where yep. Yerry Maddy had the role the year that yeah, we won. Yeah, Los Gigantes. Yep, that's, that's a cool stage. That's one that stands out for me. Yeah. And probably the other one would be uh, Duffman at GB. Okay. So. I'm trying to think now that Argentina one, it could be the one before Los Gigantes because there's, there's a series of stages that lead into each other. It was normally the middle one. There was a shorter the, first one and then the longer yes. middle one. The yeah, Los Gigantes is the is the middle one, I think. I'm going to have to check that, but I'm pretty sure it is. And then finally, <laughs> let's just say it is. Uh, David yeah. says, and I'd like to know this as well, we want to know about your EV project and when will it be ready? Yeah, well, we're, we're facing a few hurdles at the moment. Um <laughs> <laughs> like anything in the tech space so we've got a few challenges that we're over trying to overcome um we're well delayed on some new tech about two years delayed actually so we're working on it um we're hoping for this year that might be delayed now to next year but we're working on a few th other things within that project as well that may not just be full electric there may be some okay. other alternative as well so oh um, are yeah, we some... is is hydrogen popping in there as an option or not, or hydrogen, not down hydrogen, that? No, hydrogen's definitely on our radar. Um, okay, great. Different, 
different in the way to what Toyota does it. Um, okay. But hydrogen is a key part for Hyundai as a brand. They sort of go in both the hydrogen and the electric avenue. So, mm-hmm. yeah, for me, it's a, it's a really interesting project. I'm loving the project with our team. We're a very small team doing it, but it's creating a lot of opportunities for us. And for us as a small team to try and put our flag in the, sta- in the sand to sort of showcase what we can do when we're on the other side of the world, yeah. we need a point of difference and we need to be aligned to the brand. And um, commercially, it's, it's helping us. To be honest, it's probably what's that single project is what's helping us keep afloat with everything we're doing, including ERC. Um, so it's all sort of complementing each other. And long-term, you know, if we want Hyundai to stay involved with what we're doing, then we have a responsibility to make sure what we're racing is relevant to what they're selling. I think it's it's really exciting. I know, you know, a lot of people who will be listening to this will be thinking there'll be a sharp intake of breath with the mention of electric because it, it, it is it has become the kind of oh I, will it take the emotion away from the sport but hydrogen really has popped up in the past few years as being a, a potential alternative which which could lead us forward yeah we've got to be careful though so most hydrogens are fuel cell hydrogen and fuel cell hydrogen is still an electric platform. Yeah. So you're still okay. using an electric motor, it's still using a battery, but using gas hydrogen. So Toyota is really one of the only ones using liquid hydrogen and the combustion engine. There's obviously the talk about synthetic fuels and things at the moment. Mm. It's, the sport's at massive crossroads at the moment and, and it's not easy. There's no simple answer, which is obviously what the FIA and promoters are working through. Yeah. But for me, it's very, it's very clear. These these are the two decisions. These one decision is you got to go the manufacturer way. If you want the manufacturers to be involved in the sport, the sport has no option but to go the hybrid electric hydrogen way. Even synthetic fuel, I don't believe is necessarily a final answer because say in five years time, if the car manufacturers are only selling electric or hydrogen cars, then what relevance is it that you've got a, a combustion engine with synthetic fuel? it's not relevant to what they're selling um, and they need to be using the WRC as a test bed for their tech for the cars mm. that they're ultimately going to produce. So if you want the manufacturers involved, you need to go that way. For me, the other option is you go the sporting way, which is like what keeps getting floated around is enough uh, rally two car with a bigger restrictor, a bigger wing, which more supports privateer teams can come in. So like a team like us from New Zealand could all of a sudden run a privateer team. You could have 40, 50 cars running at the top class, the cream will always rise to the top. You'll still have the same drivers and, and the same top teams at the top, but you'll have a lot more injection of other competitors. Um, that might, again, increase the the competitor, uh, the spectator engagement, um, activations, all sorts. And if you go in that way, you're probably going to more forget about the spectators, uh, sorry, the manufacturers. You're going to more focus on the sport side, which then means you probably don't have to worry about the tech side. You can probably go down the synthetic fuel combustion side, still have the noise and all that. So for me, these these two channels and at the moment it feels like we're sort of in the middle not yeah. deciding which way to go we, I, I think the sport's at a pretty crucial point to make a decision one way or another which way it's going to go and um but yeah it's it's interesting times and even on the sound side with the ev like i, I love combustion cars and as i'm passionate for the sport for the exact same reasons i love the sound of proper classic group a and group b cars mm. but the sound of ev cars is coming like the tech you know the technology that's in the world like if we can fly a a a rocket to mars or the moon or wherever it's going i'm sure we can make an ev car make pretty good noise and that's just all going to develop with time with technology and it will come and it will become 
generational as well. My father, he loves the sound of BDA escorts. I love the sound of turbo cars. The next generation of people are probably going to love whatever an EV car makes. So it's all a matter of an opinion. Um, but I definitely feel there needs to be emotion. It needs to be sound. Um, but we just don't know which channel. You so, mentioned the yeah, word there. It's emotion, thing. isn't it? Everyone wants to, you know, it's having that emotion when you're hearing a car coming through the forest or or wherever. Yeah. Um, you know, mm-hmm. it's that that gives you the goosebumps and the expectation that something incredible is coming around the corner in a, in 30 seconds time. And you want to keep that emotion. I've got one final question for you from Mark, and then we can wrap things up and you can go to bed. <laughs> Which yeah, I don't, right. You're probably going to be up for hours with your jet lag. I don't know. But I'm Mark asks, asks a really good question here, and I think he's meaning it in relevance to, to ERC right now, because you mentioned it at the end of Sweden, you know, you're you've had a number of second positions now you're a little bit sick of being the bridesmaid because you're you're driving at the moment with the championship in mind so mark is asking what does driving to a championship versus driving full full out usually entail in terms of driving style are you lifting earlier is it less sliding are you exchanging flamboyance for smoothness um because he says you know we hear a lot about people not taking risks so what does it mean when you're when you're not flat chat that's yeah, a good question, actually. So probably the biggest thing is that we're not driving slowly still. We, we're still trying to drive fast at the moment and, and trying to do the best job we can. But you're just taking that, that edge off it. And by that, I mean, like, you're not just braking as late as you possibly can. You're not just cutting it on the corner those few extra inches where there might be a hidden rock or an obstacle. You're just allowing enough margin in the braking zones and maybe in the apexes that if you do need to avoid a rock or um, there's something unexpected or the grips change, you just have enough margin to correct. So we're only talking a percent or two, um, but it's enough difference to make, you know, one or two seconds difference on every, every stage, for example. And, you know, if you're doing 16, 10, 15 stages, one or two seconds a stage makes a big difference over a course of a rally. So it's about just taking the edge off it, but as I say, we're still driving fast. We're still trying and we're still pushing, but you're just doing it within within a set parameters, if you like. Yeah, so it is a really good question. It's interesting, and I'm going to be interested to see how you do now on the tarmac rounds coming up in the ERC. Some of so which... <laughs> We've just uh, just been kind of talking about Italy and the heat we're going to have there. I think it's going to be a really interesting experience right the way around. It's still a lot, a big chunk of the season left to go yet. And anything can happen out there, I guess, Hayden. But it is looking good for you right now. Uh, you never count your chickens before they hatch. So um, we're just taking it one round at a time. And we know we've got to, like, now we're going to a completely different part of the championship, like you say, with three tarmac rally. So um, we've got to make sure we have a good roam. And then... Um, Barham, I've been, a lot of people have been talking Barham up as a very scary rally as a driver. So um, I don't know whether to look forward to that one or not yet, but uh, we'll worry about Rome first and then uh, and then worry about Barham. Yeah, absolutely. Hayden, it's been lovely to chat to you about your life, your career, you. Um, I still haven't asked you kind of questions along the lines of, do you cook at home? What other sport do you do and all the rest uh, of it? But <laughs> I think that reaction... Good luck with the cooking. (laughs) I think that reaction says it all. That'll be Hayden Padden part two podcast. Thank you so much for chatting with me for such a long time on a a Monday evening in New Zealand. Um, Have a great trip over to Rome and I will see you there for the next round of ERC. Thank you very much. Awesome. Pleasure. Thank you very much. For more great World Rally Championship content, head to WRC+. 
with its thousands of hours of archive footage and exclusive live programming, event review shows and extensive onboards, special features too on some of the legends of the sport. This is all available at wrcplus.com, the digital online home of the World Rally Championship.